Well, today, um, the beauty of the world we live in, Facebook and YouTube and the social media world that we live in, is that we have been able to continue church, <laughs> despite not being here. Um, but some of the magic of that world is that uh, we can also tell on the backside how many people are kind of tuning in every week. And I know that there are a lot of us, for whatever reason, either uh, we're just tired of online church and we just kind of stopped, or uh, perhaps maybe we don't have access and for whatever reason we haven't been able to join, have not been joining. And so what I wanted to do today is go back sort of at the first of the year and do a very brief overview of what we've been talking about and try to kind of pull it together. And so if you have not been able to follow along for the last few months, uh, some of this is gonna come at you real quick and they're gonna be sort of the highlights. If there are things that you don't understand, I encourage you to go back and watch that if you're able. If you're not able, let me or Daniel or someone know and we will find a way for you to have access to that, whether we do some sort of audio recording or even if we have to transcribe it. Uh, we've been talking about some pretty uh, important ideas as we've gone through a number of these New Testament books uh, that are very much foundational for our faith, for our understanding, and for who we need to be as a church. So I really encourage you, if you haven't been able to be part of that or listen to those, uh, please do that. Uh, but like I said, today what I want to do is hit the highlights of those texts. In particular, we're going to talk about uh, John's letter. John's letter is particularly the first one, Hebrews, James, First and Second Thessalonians. And then I want to touch on last week's discussion, which was around the idea of righteousness, which is a tremendous uh, theme for Paul. He talks about righteousness and justification and justice, which are all the same word in Greek and Hebrew. Um, it's all the different words that we use in English to talk about the same thing, the concepts he's talking about. And then what I want to do is take that idea of righteousness, once we've talked about that, and then go back through those books so we can see how that works through all of them. And I think by the end of this, hopefully, you, you begin to see what an important theme this truly is. Um, and so we're going to quickly run through these, these lessons that we've had over the last few, few months. Um, let's begin with 1 John. And we talked about 1 John was written. John, as he writes his gospel and his letter, he's unique in a little bit in that he tells us why he's writing it. Writing it. In, in, the, in the case of the gospel, he's talking to us so that we might come to faith. If you remember our week about the gospel of John, we talked about at, at the end, after the, the story of doubting Thomas, he says that he's written all these things so that we might come to belief. In his letter, in 1 John, he tells us that he's written to those who already believe so that they may be assured of their salvation. So it's kind of like the next step. The first, the gospel is written so that we might have belief. The second, the letter is written so that we might understand and be assured that we have true belief and our eternal salvation is secure. And he tells us uh, the thing that makes it so that we know that that's the truth is, is the fact that we love one another, that we love God and that we love others. And he, he, he spends a lot of time talking about um, our, our knowledge of our security. We can rest assured that we are secure because we love God, which is certainly a vertical us-to-God relationship, but it's manifest in the world horizontally amongst the people that we live with and among. And so our true love for those around us is the manifestation of our faith, our relationship with God, and it is the tangible proof that lets us know that we are truly a member of God's family. And think about this practically, it makes sense. What we're talking about is a love that comes from God that allows us to love people despite sometimes not wanting to. Let's be honest, there are people that aren't the nicest, we don't get along with. 
Uh, and if we're left to our own devices, we would probably rather not be around them. We don't have a, an affinity for them, and we could just rather just as well do without them. Uh, but God grants us the ability to, despite all of that, to love them anyway. And as we begin to live in a way that is loving towards the people who we really don't like, that becomes proof, that becomes the, the key or the, the tell that we are in fact a member of God's family and God is working through us and we then of course have been justified, made righteous, brought into relationship with God. Then we talked about Hebrews and Hebrews has three primary sections or themes that it talks about. The first is Jesus as priest and he talks, if you remember, if you were with us, he talked about Jesus being a priest like Melchizedek, which is an Old Testament priest that Abraham comes into contact as he's wandering through the wilderness. Um, and Hebrews talks about Jesus being like Melchizedek because Melchizedek was a priest that was not part of a priestly family. If you know the history of Israel, God sets up the, the children, the family of Aaron as the Levitical tribe, and it was that tribe which, was ser- which would serve as the priests for the nation of Israel. So they were responsible for the temple, the maintenance of the sacrifices and all of that. Jesus, as we know, comes from the tribe of David. That was the kingly line. And so he, like Melchizedek, is not from a priestly family. And the point that the writer of Hebrews makes is that Jesus is a priest, not because he comes from a particular family, but because God has appointed him as such. And so he is a priest by appointment of God, not by, by virtue of his lineage, um, which makes him even more so a priest. Then the second theme in that text was the covenant. And there's a large discussion, a heady discussion of the covenant, the old covenant versus the new covenant in Hebrews. And the writer tells us that the old covenant was provisional. It pointed to a relationship with God. It began to establish and facilitate the conversation between God and his people, the drawing near of God, but it could never fully realize that reality. Uh, It couldn't actually, that, that covenant was not designed to bring about the restoration of a true relationship. But the new covenant that Jesus brings does. And so it supersedes, that's the term that the Hebrews talks about, it supersedes, it supplants, it replaces the old covenant because, not because the old covenant was bad, but it couldn't do the thing that God ultimately wanted to do in the world. And so he sends Jesus, establishes this new covenant, which does provide for a true relationship that we can have individually and corporately with God and each other. And so that newer covenant makes that relationship possible in a way that the old never did. And then the third theme of Hebrews is the sacrifice and the sacrificial system. And much like the covenant, the sacrifice was the thing that sort of maintained that covenant. Um, The Old Testament sacrificial system allowed for a temporary cleansing. So you would sin, you would come to the temple, you would offer sacrifice for the thing that you did that would cleanse you for a period until you went out and you sinned again, and then you'd have to come back and do it again. Every year, the high priest would enter the holy place on the Day of Atonement and offer sacrifices for the whole nation. So there was this system that God sets up to allow for a cleansing of the sin of the people, but it never fixes the problem. The problem persists, and they have to continually come back and ask for forgiveness. And so that, that sacrificial system, the, the doves or the, the goats or the sheep or whatever the particular sacrifice uh, and offering called for according to the law, never fully did what it was intended to do. Again, it points to this restoration, but it never provides for it. 
And the Hebrews writer tells us that, of course, as we know, as Christians, Jesus' sacrifices does that. And so it was the more, better, truer sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice that actually allows us to be fixed, to be cleansed, to be brought back into a relationship for all eternity with God, to not to have to return to the temple. We don't come in here anymore and offer sacrifices on our altar. I'm not splitting goats in half and walking through them and sprinkling blood on you because we no longer have to do that. It's the blood of Christ the one-time sacrifice that fixes all of it. And so the, the point that Hebrews is making is that Jesus is the more imperfect of all and better of all of these things, the better priest. He establishes the better covenant because he's the better sacrifice, ultimately because he's God. Because he is God incarnate, he can accomplish all of that. And in the beginning of the text, it says that Jesus is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of his very being, we talked about the point that Hebrews makes that we really need to grasp on to is this idea of, and it's kind of a fancy word, but it's called the Jesus hermeneutic. And a hermeneutic is a lens through which we see the world. And what the New Testament, and we're going to see as we go through Paul, what he's trying to get us to understand, and what the New Testament is there to do is to show us Jesus. Jesus is God. And we need to read the rest of the Old Testament, look at the world through that lens of Jesus. So I know, I know Lonnie still wears those bracelets. If you remember the bracelets that say, WWJD, what would Jesus do? So what would Jesus do? What would Jesus think? How would, you, would Jesus feel about the situation or this person? It goes back to our earlier point. One of the ways we know that we are part of the family is that we see other people as Jesus would see them, right? We don't see them as our broken, sinful, sometimes spiteful and hateful selves want to see them we're able to set that aside and look at them as Jesus would see them through the lens of Jesus and love them, right? And as John tells us, that becomes evidence that we are part of this family, that we are actually embodied by the Spirit and living a new, new life. We are, we are the new creation, right? But when we ask the question, what is God like? What the writer of Hebrews tells us is you always go to Jesus. You look to Jesus. We have a tendency in the history of the church that we go to, you know, we, we start our pictures of God in the Old Testament because we have so many stories about who God is and what he's like. And we build a picture of God there. And then we go and we look at the New Testament. And sometimes those things don't match up real easily, right? Let's be honest. There are things that are a little bit of discordant. They don't fit nicely, right? Sometimes the Old, God, the Old Testament God who seems a little bit angry and a little bit violent doesn't match up with the loving Jesus that we see in the New Testament. And what the Hebrews writer is telling us you first have to go, you got to go learn who Jesus is first, right? Now that Jesus has come, we have the picture of who God is, right? In some ways, the Old Testament was a little fuzzy, right? It was mediated through prophets and an experience and people, but Jesus is the actual embodiment of God given to us. So we must immerse ourselves in the Gospels and the writings of the New Testament to understand who this Jesus is, because it's in understanding who Jesus is that we understand who God is. And once we know that, then we can go back to the Old Testament and begin to try to tease out, okay, if, if this is Jesus, what was God trying to do here? And why did he act this way? Right? And we begin to answer the questions that way. That's what it means to have a Jesus view, worldview hermeneutic lens. Right? We look at everything through the life, person, and work of Jesus. Then we came to the letter of James. Who, remember, who remembers who James is? Sorry? James' twin. <laughs> James' twin. My son's named after him too, so there's another James. But James in the Bible is Jesus' brother, 
Right? So he's one of the brothers that comes to Jesus in the gospel and says, hey, you got to come home. You're embarrassing the family. Right? And he, come, he, along with his other brothers and his mother, tried to get him because he's, you know, they don't think Jesus is acting right and he's an embarrassment. And so what, what, what we think we know about James, all in, in indications show that he didn't believe Jesus when Jesus was alive. He was not a disciple. He was not a follower. But after the resurrection happens, and here's my brother crucified, and now he's walking around, that has a certain ability to convince people. And, and what we know in the, 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 the early church writings and the New Testament and James's letter, and, but also from Paul, is that James is the, new, is the church leader. James rises to be the leader of the Jerusalem church, and the Jerusalem church is the mother church. Right? This is the original church to which all of their churches look in that first century or two centuries. And when Paul, in, as he's writing in Galatians, when he has his experience on, of, of Jesus on the, on the road, on the Damascus road, we're told he kind of disappears for a while to try to think through and work through what's going on. And when he comes back, he goes to see James because he wants to make sure that what he's teaching is in line with the teaching of the church. And it's James that he goes to see. He ends up seeing Peter as well, but his intention was not to go see the 12 disciples. James is not one of those, but to go see James. And that tells you a little bit about the importance of James and who he was, the influence he had, and the understanding that he had about who Jesus was ultimately and, and what the church is supposed to be. It's James that Peter goes to see, uh, or that Paul goes to see, not Peter or any of the other disciples. Uh, and, and in this letter that is the teaching of James, um, it's not a letter we talked about that's built sort of logically that flows like Paul's letters. It's more of a, here are three or four topics that I need to talk about, and they get kind of lumped in. So there's some harsh transitions in there. But uh, the three things that he talked about were, were first, as he opens, he talks about to his church enduring trials and sufferings, that these are, in the end, gifts from God that bring about perseverance in the faith. If you're familiar with the letter, you'll recognize that discussion. Um, and he talks into the second chapter a lot about how the church, as faithful people who are living through these struggles and trials, despite the fact that they're undergoing all of this, this hardship, they must continue to love each other, to love the poor, to love the needy. And he gets on them a little bit for not doing that. And that's the famous passage where he says, faith without works is dead. That if you have this faith in God and in Jesus, but you are not doing the things that he says to do, which is to love your neighbor, well, then what good is your faith? And then from that point, he goes on to have, uh, in chapter three, this discussion and this instruction towards teachers. So anyone, whether it's a, somebody like me who stands up here in the morning, or, or if you're a small group teacher, or you just have a circle of friends that you are talking to, like te- there's a formal teaching, but there's teachers in general, that if you are in a position to teach anyone, so if you are a disciple maker, Right? He is encouraging us and reminding us that our words matter. What you say matters. Right? And we need to be wise. He has a, a couple metaphors. One of them is a, a tongue is like a fire. And if you say the wrong thing, you can set the whole thing on fire. The whole thing will burn down if you are not wise in the way you speak. He also talks about the tongue being a rudder on a ship that with little words. And what he's talking about here is the teacher's words, my words, your words, to the extent that you have influence over the others, can guide the church the body of God, right? And so we need to, be, we need to recognize that's, that's the reality. That's a responsibility that's placed on us as disciple makers to be wise in the way we talk. And then he goes on to be really kind of harsh on them. And he talks about how they have been selfish and they've sought after their own good. 
and it has led to fights and conflict and murder. And we talked about the fact that in James's context, he's not, this is not a metaphor. This is actual people taking daggers into the marketplaces and you know, shanking people like a prison. Right? They, there's a, a group called the Sicari, we've talked about them before, the dagger men, the zealots. And they would carry daggers under their cloaks and walk through the market. And when they saw someone who they thought wasn't living up to the standard or someone who uh, had sold the Jews out to Rome for power, they would literally sort of come up on both sides of them, stab them, and walk off. And there was, at this time, always the, the tension and the temptation to do that. So James is speaking to a church who is the poor, who is the oppressed. They are the underside. They are the ones who the wealthy Jews have uh, oppressed. They have, the wealthy have made uh, arrangements and compromises with the powers of Rome so that they can stay in power. And that means that those people who don't have land, who are blue-collar workers and the peasants, they're bearing the brunt and paying the price. And there are those, like the dagger men, who are arguing for violence. The answer to this is violence. We have to, we have to start a revolution. And this was always something in that first century that was, there was a tension. Was, like I said, it's a powder keg here. Uh, the, Ro- the Romans put a, uh, an official in the area of Judea in order to keep that down. They didn't want revolution happening. And so James is talking to a church that is always tempted to do this. And he's reminding his leaders, you have to be careful with what you say, because if we say the wrong thing, our people will pick up swords. Right? And we know that ultimately that happens. In 70 AD, the temple's destroyed, and in 130-ish, the whole nation is destroyed. There's an actual a genocide. We've talked before, 400,000 Jews are massacred because the Jews rose up violently, and Rome came in to squash it. All right? And so as James is writing, this is a reality. And so he's writing, on the one hand, to his church to say, stay peaceful, stay calm, don't be violent, love one another, And then he turns at the end of the letter to the rich, to the landowners, to the merchants, and says, you better change your ways. God hears the cries of those who you are oppressing, whose wages you have withheld, is one of the phrases he uses. And he says, the judge is standing at the door, and it's coming. Right? And what he's doing here is instilling in them this understanding that Jesus, the judge, is coming. Things will be set right. Right? They can be peaceful, they can endure trials if they understand that in the end Jesus comes back to set it all right. If they know justice will be made, if God is truly righteous, which is what we're going to talk about here in a little bit, if God is truly faithful to his promises to make the world right again, well, they can kind of take the foot off their gas pedal a little bit and they don't need to pick up swords because they may suffer now, but they know in the end it will all be made right. And... and on the other side of the token, those who do, are doing the oppressing better knock it off because Jesus is coming back. And if they're the ones doing the wrong, the oppressing, they're going to be in trouble. And so James has this dual message in his letter to both sides to uh, think well about what they're doing and how they're acting in the world uh, because at any moment, God is coming back. And then we get into, uh, got into the first and second letters that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. And we, uh, I said, and the majority of scholars and, and people who are studying this deeply think that these are the first letters that Paul wrote. Certainly not the first work that he did. They're not the first church he planted. But as far as we can tell, it's likely that these, maybe Galatians, 
but those are the early ones. These are the first recorded writings that we have of Paul. And those two letters are, are there's, there's a theme that transcends both of them, but the first one is very positive. Timothy has gone back to the, they have planted the church, they have moved on. Timothy has gone back to check on them to see how they're doing and has now returned to Paul and gives Paul a great report and tells them that the church is doing well, they love each other. So the, the, you, can, you can pick up a theme, right? Love each other, right? So they're doing that well. And so Paul picks up his pen or he dictates to someone who writes. We don't exactly know how that played out, but he writes this letter back to Thessalonica, his church that he's planted, to tell them how proud of him he is that they have done well. And he says things like, uh, Timothy tells me you're loving each other. He says, I want you to do that even more, more and more. And he talks to them about uh, the second coming. This is a theme that Paul picks up here too. That, and, and keep in mind that this early church, they have in their mindset the idea that Jesus is probably coming back soon. So early in the church, they thought that was going to happen quickly. We obviously are sitting here 2,000 years later and it still hasn't happened. So that changes our, our mindset about that, perhaps. But what Paul is trying to make them understand is this is going to have, have happen soon. So in the same way James was saying, you better behave, Paul's now saying, you, you need to lo- you're loving each other, that's great. I want you to love each other even more. Like, push further, keep doing, go further and further and further so that when God comes back, when Jesus comes back, he'll find you being faithful, loving each other, loving your neighbors, taking care of the poor and the widows and the orphans. You need to be found doing these things because this is what we're called to do. And then in the second letter, it's sometime later, we think as soon as perhaps even six months later, things have gone off the rails pretty quickly. So Paul sends this letter. He talks about the second coming and what happens in the church between what he's probably taught, what they're then thinking, and that first letter that arrives is there's a group of them that think, oh, well, Jesus is coming back next week, right? Or next month or, or soon. So what do I need to work for? Like, what's the point? And so they just, they stop working and they just decide to leech off of everybody else. The other thing to remember is that these churches are communities, they're family, they're dependent on one another. And so when part of that church decides they're not going to work, it's a drain on everybody else and it creates this tension and a problem. And so the second letter is not quite so nice. Paul's a little more terse and harsh and he's writing to tell them, no, that's not, that's not okay. If you can work, you need to work. And this is where he says, those who don't work can't eat. And he's making the point, obviously, that if you're not going to participate and bring to the church, to the community, the things you have to offer, right? And that's more than just work and resources. It's talents and time and, and prayer and, and all of those things. We can, we can put all of that in there. If you're not willing to do that, then you don't get to participate. You don't get to derive the benefits of the community either. But what he, he talks about in, in both of those letters, the theme that's overarching and the problem in that church is their understanding of the second coming. And so what Paul is writing in both of those to do is to instill what we call an apocalyptic mindset. And we've talked before about apocalypse is not this cataclysmic end of the world scenario that we have kind of Hollywood especially has helped us think about apocalypse as. Um, apocalypse literally means an unveiling or uh, drawing the curtain back showing, so Paul and James even in his letter, to the extent that they are instilling an apocalyptic worldview in their church, what they're doing is they're pulling the veil back on the true reality of the world. Given who Jesus is, what he did, and what he's promised to do to come back, they're saying, here's what's going to happen. And because this is the end, because this is 
what really is going on here with God and Jesus and the story of Israel and the way in which God has promised to make things new, that should influence the way that we live our life. It's why James can look at his church and say, calm down, suffer, be persecuted, don't lash out, love, because in the end, God's going to come back and make it all okay, right? And to the extent that you've been faithful and you have suffered for God, you will be rewarded for that, right? It is this apocalyptic mindset that permeates the whole New Testament, this understanding that in the end, we serve a Jesus who is mighty, who is faithful, who is just, who is righteous. And it was righteousness that we talked about last week. And so last week, we didn't talk about a particular book, but rather a particular theme, and that was the theme of righteousness. And we have, especially since Luther, which was in the 16th century, he's the one that, if you know the story, he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church and sparked the Protestant Reformation at a time when the church that we now know as the Catholic Church uh, had gone sort of off the rails in a number of different ways uh, in its thinking and its practice. And so things needed to be done to bring the, the train back on the tracks. Things had gotten derailed. And as, he, as he's doing that, he's talking a lot about faith uh, and the idea that we are justified by our faith. And I mentioned earlier that the word for justification, for justice, for righteousness, those are all the same words in the text. Um, and so as he begins to talk about the fact that we are justified by our faith, not by our works, well, that was, a, that was the history of the Catholic Church, that there was confession and penance, and you had to be doing things. There were things in the, that you had to do in your life in order to earn the salvation. And so Luther is responding strongly to that, to correct that error. Um, and in doing so, he has a particular idea of justice that's informed by his culture, and it's very much this idea of justice that we have even today, uh, that there is a law court system, and if you break the law, you pay for it. Everyone gets what they deserve. And what it means for God to be just is that he gives someone what they deserve. So if you're a sinner, the wages of sin are death, right? And so what he sees Jesus doing is the sacrifice of Jesus makes it possible for God to look at us as the good judge and say, you were a sinner, but because of what Jesus has done, you're now no longer a sinner. You are righteous. You are, he, so he, pulls, he justifies you. He pulls you out of the sinner column and sets you in the now non-sinner column. So he takes you from broken relationship to mended relationship. And it was very much just this status or category shift in Luther's mindset. That was, that was what he was working with. And we, in a large measure, have inherited that understanding and so what it means to follow Jesus, to follow God, to be a good Christian, is that we have this list of behaviors that we shouldn't do. And if you believe God and you are indwelled by the Spirit, you will conform to this list. And to the extent that you transgress one of those laws, you become a sinner. To the extent that you follow those rules, you're a saint. But Jesus makes it so that even when you break that law, you can be forgiven and put back over here, Right? That probably sounds familiar to a lot of us. But the, the biblical understanding of righteousness, going back into the Old Testament and the Hebrew understanding and, and, and what that word means in our biblical text, it is, a, it is a category, it is a status, there is a righteous judge, God, who will deem us to be one or the other. But he does that based upon the extent to which we are truly righteous. And righteous in the text has to do with relationship. So you are righteous to the extent that you meet the obligations that you have in the midst of relationships. So if you and I are friends, 
I have certain obligations to you, to be kind to you, to support you, right? To come alongside you in times of need, right? To not talk bad about you, right? There, there, the fact that we are in a relationship means things. And humanity is unrighteous because to the extent that God has established a relationship between us and him, we don't meet those obligations. We fail. We break the relationship. And so it's not a matter of we just broke a law. It is we broke the relationship, right? We stepped outside the bounds of what it means to be in a relationship with God, and we are therefore unrighteous. But God is always righteous. And so as the Old Testament talks about God being faithful to his covenant, being righteous, last week, if you didn't watch last week, I strongly encourage you to go back and watch that two or three times, probably. Uh, we threw, I threw a lot of info in there, and it's, it's kind of heady, but it's really important to understand this. And we went through a lot of scripture that showed this point. The people of the Old Testament, the Psalms writers, the prophets, Isaiah, for example, they're calling upon God's righteousness. And what they mean there is not, we're calling upon the fact that God is sinless. What, he means, what they mean is we're calling upon God to do the thing for us that he promised us he would do to fulfill his obligation. God has an obligation to his creation because he's the creator. God has an obligation to Israel because he's established this covenant, right? He made a promise to Abraham that he would establish a nation and through that nation, the whole world would be blessed. There's an obligation there. And what it means for God to be righteous is that he will ultimately fulfill that obligation, right? And so as Paul talks about righteousness, what he's talking about is not a legal status that we need to conform to by not breaking laws. What he's talking about is, are we in proper relationship with God? Are we in proper relationship with others? And Jesus is ultimately the purely righteous one because he comes and fulfills the obligation of humanity to God. He also fulfills God's obligation to us because if God is ultimately righteous, he has an obligation. Remember, God created the world right? He loves the world. God, as he existed as a trinity, is community, is love. It is out of that community and love that he creates a world which he can share, with which he can share that love, right? He has an obligation to this thing that he's created, right? There's a relationship there, but we broke it, right? It's our fault. We broke it, but God is ultimately purely righteous. So because God is righteous, he will fix it. And so it is Jesus on the cross, as Hebrews tells us, the perfect and better priest, establishing a perfect and better covenant through the perfect and better sacrifice that bears out and brings about God's righteousness. And so when we say Jesus is the righteousness of God, we don't mean Jesus is the perfect sinless one. He is, of course, but what we mean is more than that, that he is the one who truly fulfills both sides of the covenant. He is the human who is truly righteous and fulfills all obligation to God, and he is God's fulfillment of God's obligation and promise to humanity. That makes sense? And so when we say that that then allows us to be righteous, it's not simply that we are cleansed and don't sin. We are now put back into that relationship. And through God's spirit, we are empowered now to live rightly in that relationship, right? We are given God's righteousness by virtue of the spirit now to be able to live rightly, which goes back to John, right? What's the proof? You live rightly with, with, the, with the view of Jesus as Jesus would, right? In a way that you cannot live 
otherwise. And so let's take that righteous idea of concept of righteousness and let's kind of go back to these very quickly. As we go back to Thessalonians, Paul is teaching his churches to live in this renewed relationship, right? He, he says, you love each other, love more, right? And so what he's, what he's calling them to is a continued renewal, a continued push into the, the renewed life, the new creation that God has brought them into because what it means to be righteous is to be in a relationship vertically with God and horizontally with each other, right? And so he's giving them this picture of, sort of the, as we said, the apocalyptic picture of reality to allow them to have the framework within which to live, to live loving, right lives. And it's why he encourages them to love each other more and more and more, why he's so proud in 1 Thessalonians that they are living that way. Because that's the way, that's what it means to be righteous, is to live lovingly towards each other. In James, we've kind of hinted at this already, but James has that apocalyptic tone. He says the judge is at the door, and it is that, is that reality which James then calls him, and he says explicitly, he says, treat each other as well, don't be violent, don't be selfish, endure suffering, care for the poor and the weak. Like these are all instructions on how we live righteously. Again, not because they're just some list of things that we need to conform to, but rather this is, this is what true relationship looks like. And if we're going to be righteous, which we are now, we have been justified, we have been made righteous, we ought to be living this way. We can't take up the sword and go into the streets and start a violent revolution. We can't be wealthy landowners and oppress and withhold wages and take advantage of the poor who can't help it. These are the instructions that James gives to live righteously. And then back through Hebrews, right? We talked about already Jesus being the one who fulfills the covenant. It's because he's, because he's righteous, right? God, through Jesus, is fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham. Jesus is the righteousness of God. God's righteousness has come. And then in 1 John, back to that first letter, as we've said, how do you know that you've been saved? How do you know that your faith in Jesus is real? Well, quite simply, it's you live in a way that you could not live otherwise. That our human inclination compels us, our sinful nature, which we still struggle with these two natures, right? And Paul has a lot to say about that as well, particularly in Romans. We'll get there. But we have this baser inclination. Someone wrongs us, we want revenge. Someone makes fun of us, we don't ever want to talk to them again. Right? You cross me, out of my life. But what the Spirit of God does is he allows you to live righteously. He allows you to view these people with the forgiveness that Jesus has for us and them, with the love that Jesus has for us and them, to work for restoration. And it is that work of restoration, it is that compulsion to make things right in the world, to mend relationships, even when we have every right to not, that is the evidence that we are a people of God, that you have been called, that you are indwelled by the Spirit, right? It is God that has given you the power to be righteous, to meet the obligations that you have to God and to others. In the end, because God is righteous, as we said, he, he must fix the world. And so it is God's righteousness that means there, there will be, there was redemption. It means there is restoration, and ultimately it means there must be salvation. If God made the world and has an obligation to fix it, in the end, he must save it. 
And it is that understanding of God's righteousness that runs through the entire Old Testament. It is the plea of everyone who cries out to God, dear righteous God, make good on your promise, keep us safe, make us safe. When will the Messiah come? It is the expectation that's swirling in the first century as Jesus comes onto the scene when they're expecting a Messiah because they know that the Messiah is the outworking of God's righteousness. The Messiah is the one who will make it all right. It is the fulfillment of the promise that God has made. It is God being righteous in our midst. And so I hope you're beginning to see uh, particular themes come up to the top. Uh, The last couple months, Daniel and I have been talking at, at length about, we have like I don't know, five or six sermons we preach, right? They're, they're, they're really six things to say, right? And they are love God, love each other, and a number of other things that flow out of those two things. But what we are finding, and I hope you're seeing as we dig into every single writer of the New Testament, every single story in the Old Testament, is at the core of everything, the core of the foundation. One of the reasons I wanted to do this and walk back through the text that we've looked at since the first of the year, and we could go all the way back to the summer, is that at the, at the base, at the foundation, is God in community with himself as the Trinity, creating the world out of love to be in relationship with. And then at the very beginning, we broke it, right? That's the story of Adam and Eve. We, you know, I said last week, Adam and Eve were not unrighteous or sinful because they ate some fruit, right? It's not, it's not that there's some universal law out there that says don't eat fruit. Right? We eat fruit all the time. They were unrighteous and sinful because the relationship that they had with God had one stipulation. If you're going to love me, it means you can't eat that. If you're going to be in a relationship with me, you can't eat that. Like they had an obligation not to do that in order to maintain that relationship, and, and they messed it up. Right? And we mess it up. Right? And, and even with the gift of Jesus, we still mess it up. Right? But the story, this book, this is a love story. For all its weirdness and craziness and culture that we don't understand, its twists and its turns and its context that we have to tease out. What Daniel said the other, or it was last week, I think, in a conversation we had, that as we tease apart that context, and we really understand what's said, what it says, when we get down behind what's going on here that sometimes is murky, when we can clear that up, it becomes very simple. It is a very simple story. It's a love story. It's God loving the community of himself, creating out of that love, us breaking the relationship, and at that moment, God says, I'm going to fix it because I love you. I created you. I have an obligation to you. And this is the story, thousands of years it took. And someday I'm going to ask him, why did it take so long? (laughs) Right? I don't know why, but what I know we have is, is, is the great love. Right? God is love. We have lots of descriptions of the God. He is righteous. He is good. He is holy. He is powerful. But when we talk about God's identity, the text tells us God is love. It's a love story. It is a loving God seeking after a people, a world that's unrighteous, that turns their back on him time after time. But he will not stop. He does not stop. And even with the advent of Jesus, there's still work to be done. And so I hope that most of us, all of us, have 
heard this story put that way, I hope that you understand God's righteousness is born out of love for you. Because God is righteous, he has fulfilled his obligation to you. He has sought after you because he loves you, because he wants to be in a relationship with you. He has sent his son to die on the cross to put you back in relationship with him, to make it okay, to fix it. And now he's asking you to love him. And he's even giving you his spirit so that you can. Because even now, as he turns to you and says, I've fixed it, we still want to buck against it. We want to kick against it. We want to go our own way. And so he says, here, here's more of me. I will make it so that you can do this. And so he sends his spirit so that we can turn back towards him, be in this relationship, that we can love him and be loved by him. And that's the beauty of the cross and what's accomplished there. But as we've talked before, the gospel is not, does not stop at salvation, right? That is the saving act of Jesus. For those of us who understand that, who live in that reality, we now have obligations. We are in relationship again. We are a renewed being, a new creation. God has now enabled us to do something, and it is to live the right way. It is to live in loving relationship with him and towards our neighbors. And so if we are truly to be righteous, we must love God vertically, right? Up and down, us and God. But that always gets tied to loving our neighbors, which I hope you can hear as we go back through our letters time and time again, across all of the writers, across all of the letters that they wrote, every single one of Paul's letters drives home the point that you are to love your neighbors no matter what, because that's what God has done for you. It doesn't matter what they do to you. It doesn't matter if they oppress you. You can't pick up a sword. You can't be hateful. You can't, as a teacher, speak poorly, sow seeds of discord or hate or revenge, because you'll throw it off track. That is unrighteous. We have obligations to love our neighbors, love each other, be that community, to bring everything we have to this place, to these people, to our family, to support one another, and then to go out into this world and to bring others into that family. We are now the hands and feet. We talk about this a lot. It is now our job, our, our righteous acts are to go into the world and to do for others what God has done for us. To live rightly with God and others now as those redeemed means that we go and we bring other people into the family. We now live the love story, right? We are the recipients of God's love and now we're the ones who get to go chase other people and show that to them. What an awesome responsibility. What a great privilege that is. I've intentionally left our scripture to the end today. It is from Isaiah, the 42nd chapter, verses 6 and 7. This is the word of the Lord spoken through Isaiah. It says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Friends, that's our charge. 
It's what it means to be righteous. It's what it means to be people of God. And when we can do this, it's the evidence that we are the people of God. This is our call. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good and just and righteous God. We thank you that you have, since the very beginning, loved us, sought after us, and taken the steps necessary to fix what we have broken. And we just cannot express how grateful we are to know that despite the ways that we act, despite our wrong inclination to kick against your purposes for our life and this world, that time and time again you call us back to you, that there is always forgiveness and restoration, that we will always be your sons and your daughters. And we ask that you would give us the confidence and the assurance that that is the truth, that is the reality, and that you would propel us to go into this world and speak that truth to others. Show us what it means to live in your love story. Show us what it means to be agents of your love and your care and your purpose in this world. We ask all these things in the name of your Son and the power of your Spirit, which is your gift to us. Amen.